All right, like I said last week, we're going to talk about a couple things as we begin to minister to people and share the gospel with people. Oftentimes, we hear objections. Um, And the the verse that I was thinking of when when I was looking at these was 1 Peter 3.15. And we read it last week, but we'll read it again. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, when we're ministering the gospel and people begin to question why we do this, why we believe such things, we need to be ready to make a defense for our our hope in the gospel. And so many times when we preach the gospel to people, when we share it with people, we're met with opposition. And we know that some people are just genuinely curious. They, they, They want to have, they got a couple of questions that they want to have answered. But there are some people that are openly hostile to the gospel, and the only reason that they're, they're questioning is because they want to make you feel foolish. They think that somehow, that if they give you these questions that are many times difficult for, for young Christians to answer, that they're going to uh, somehow make you feel foolish and turn your back on it, or maybe they feel stronger or tougher than you. I don't know what it is, but we see it quite often. So today, uh, last week, you remember, we, we looked at the, the objection, how could God only allow one way into heaven? And this week, we're going to talk about uh, a few other objections that quite regularly come up. And I've entitled the message, If He Is, because this is how they usually start. You know, if, if God is real, if He is real, then He needs to perform some sign. You know, if God's real, make Him... Make him float those rocks on the side of the road. Have him lift up and just float. If God's real, have him do that. Or what about, God, if you're real, just let me get this job, then I'll serve you. But it's always if he is. Or what about this one? If God is, good, if God is a good God, if he is good, then why is there sickness and disease and destruction in this world? Anybody ever had that question asked of you? Or what about this one? If God is a good God, if He is good, then why do good things happen to bad people? Anybody ever wondered that? Even personally, ever looked out and seen, man, why does it seem like they are so blessed? You know, these are some of the objections we might hear as we're trying to minister the gospel. And the the problem is, is these objections come from a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is and a misunderstanding of what is actually causing all of the problems that we're dealing with on this earth today. You see, if you talk to people, there's differing views of who God is. Some people will say, you know what, God doesn't exist. There is no God. Some people just say that. Some people will say, well, if God does exist, then he's just got to be a sadist. Anybody ever heard that? If he exists with all this, you know, kids have cancer. And all these things, I mean, God must just enjoy pain if He really exists. Some people will think, you know what, if, if He exists and He's just uncaring, He's callous, and He's just unsympathetic, so He doesn't care about us at all. And there's all these different views of God that differ from ours. And the truth is that we begin forming an idea of who God is from the moment that we are born. Much of that's teaching from our parents. You know, if, you're, if your parents don't have a revelation of who God is, if they don't know who God really is, then they're not going to be able to teach you who God is. That's why it's so important as parents for us to raise our kids up in the way that they should go. 
Because if we don't do it, somebody else is going to teach them. If we don't teach our kids that God is real, God is love, that he has a plan for their life, somebody else is going to teach them something completely different. And you better believe that somebody will be teaching. Next, we begin to form an idea of who God is by looking at our own fathers. People that have a poor father, that have a a father that wasn't good to them, have a hard time determining what God is like because they begin to associate the the, uh, attributes of their earthly father to their heavenly father. And that, that is so easily done that they, they can't understand how God could be a loving God. If my, if my father doesn't love me, how could this father love me? We also see that our views are shaped by the, of, of the portrayal of God in media. I know that was one of my biggest things. I was growing up and uh, you, you see them talk about God and who God is. And if, you, if you're not taught correctly, you begin to say, man, God is just out there waiting for me to mess up so he can smack me with a stick. You know, we begin to see all these things or, or God is unloving and uncaring because people show stuff on media who don't believe in God. That's who their portrayal of God is and it begins to form our opinion of who He is. The truth is the enemy is going to do all that he can to distort God's image because it's going to drive people from him. So when we are talking to people, when they, when they have objections to who God is, when they have these objections, we need to make sure that we're being sympathetic with them when they're having these genuine objections. I'm not talking about the people that are just trying to be honorary and make you feel stupid, but people that have honest questions, we need to understand that this is legitimate concerns that they have, and we need to gently explain them the truth of the gospel and show them love so that we can lead them to the truth. Amen? So the first one that I want to start with are the people that want to pose challenges to God. They want to see a sign. You know, my favorite one that, I, that I've heard in the past is, if God is real, have him make this rock float right now. In Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 40, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If God is real, have him give me a sign. Have him show me that he's real. And typically, these kind of objections, when they're trying to get you to make a rock float or anything like that, then... These are usually hostile objections. These people have no intention of hearing what you have to say. They're trying to, to prove the, the non-existence of God because if he doesn't make that rock flow right now, then that proves that he's not real. They're just trying to disprove that, that God is alive and that your faith is silly. But the truth is, they'll even try to use Scripture to prove these things are wrong. The Bible says in Matthew 21... 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You know, these people that are asking God, they're saying, yeah, the Bible says I can ask anything that I want. But they don't ask in faith. They ask actually with the complete opposite of faith. They believe that it's not going to happen. 
You know, they can ask a rock to float all they want, have God to do it, tell it to do it, all these things. But if, if they don't believe that God's going to actually do it, then it's not going to happen. James 1, 6-8 says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is, <clears throat> pardon me, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Anybody that wants to make some sort of objection of God by saying, you know what, I'll prove that he's not real. The Bible says that I can ask for what I want, and then they ask for it and it doesn't happen. They're not asking in faith. That's the first thing you need to point out to him is, you know what, you can't pick and choose scriptures to try to make a point. The truth is that if you ask in faith, if you believe that God will do these things, God will do whatever you ask. They have the opposite of faith. I remember one time I was watching this YouTube video, a big headline, I can prove that God's not real. And the guy gets on there, he's made his, his cute little video, and he says, you know what, here's the scripture. And he reads that, Matthew 21-22, through 22, and he says, the Bible says that if I ask in prayer, I will receive it. He must not have read the part if you have faith. But he says, you know what it says, the Bible says whatever I ask, then I will receive it. So he says, you know what, he's got a jug of milk. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray to God that he would make this jug of milk disappear. And he goes through and he says, he says, God, please make this jug of milk disappear. And obviously he opens his eyes and nothing happens. You know, he makes this, this big ado about if we ask God to do these things and he's going to make it happen. And the jug of milk obviously doesn't disappear. And he goes, see, that's proof that God doesn't exist. Well, one, he's distorting the scriptures. The Bible says you have to ask in faith. He says if we ask anything in the will of God, It'll be given to us. Now, any real Christian is not going to ask for something as trivial for a, a jug of milk to disappear. That's just silly. But you know what? The, the greatest thing that you can point out to them is what would happen if God made that jug of milk disappear? What if I was down in downtown preaching the gospel and they said, you know what? I want to see that rock float. And I pray to God and the rock begins to float. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, they're going to think that I'm, I'm doing it. They're, they're not going to believe what just happened was by God. Even if God did an amazing miracle right in front of them, they don't want to believe that God exists. They're going to spend the rest of their life trying to figure out how I made the rock float, how I made the jug of milk disappear. And then there are those who would give an ultimatum to God. Kind of like the Pharisees here. They, they believed in God, but they wanted to see a sign before they would move forward. And many of Christians have done this. God, if you'll just let me marry this person, if you'll just let me get this job, if you'll just let me do this and that, oh, then I'll serve you, God. We begin to give God ultimatums in our life and how we can serve Him. Remember Doubting Thomas? He kind of had that same problem. John 20-25, through 25, it says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord... But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Peter or Thomas had that same idea. You know, he was giving God an ultimatum. And I praise God that, that Jesus does come back to him and he lets him see these things. But what is Jesus' answer to him when he finally shows him? In John twenty twenty eight through 29 it says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. God's looking for faith. God is looking for people that will trust him because he is who he says he is. He's not looking for people that are looking for a supernatural resume from God. He's looking for faith. What about this question? Anybody ever heard that this is a great one? If God is all-powerful, if he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, can he create a rock that is so big that he can't lift it? Anybody ever heard that one? See, here's the, here's the, the point of this argument. If God is all-powerful, he can do anything. Can he create a rock that's so big that he can't lift it? Well, if he can't create a rock that, he's, that is so big that he can't lift it, then, well, he's not all-powerful. He can't do everything. But if he can create a rock that he can't lift, then he's not all-powerful. He can't do it because he can't lift the rock. So the, the, the whole thing is designed to show that being all-powerful is a contradiction. But there's some, there's some problems with this argument. First is the false supposition that God can do everything. Because God is almighty, then he can do anything. That's the first supposition. But you know that's not true. God can't do anything. Matter of fact, the scripture lists things that God can't do. God can't lie. In Hebrews 6.18 it says that so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Being all-powerful, almighty, doesn't mean that you can do everything. Because God can't lie. In 2 Timothy 2.13 it says if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Another thing God can't do is deny Himself. In James 1.13 it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. That's another thing God can't do is be tempted with evil. The second problem that we have in this one is that the question itself is a contradiction in and of itself. So here's what actually has to happen for this whole question to work out. In order for a rock to be created that was so big that infinite power couldn't lift it, the rock must be infinitely large and heavy, right? But however, by definition, all created things are finite. There's only one thing that's infinite, and that is God. When people ask this question, they're asking God to do something that is just not possible. To make an infinite rock. But created things are finite. You see, Jesus said to all of those who were looking for signs that there would only be one sign given. And that's the sign of Jonah. Just like he was in the fish for three days and rose again, Jesus died, was buried in this earth for three days and rose again. If that's not a big enough sign for somebody, what will be? Will there be anything that can convince them? The next one that I want to look at is why do... Good things happen to bad people. In Matthew 5.45 it says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The reason I've looked at this scripture is because there are people in this world that seem like they get blessing even though from our eyes they shouldn't be receiving any blessing. But many times people receive blessing because God blesses people equally across the board in many cases. 
Sometimes they receive blessing because they're standing a little bit close to us. And the blessing overflows. But if we look at the case of the farmer here, that's receiving the sun and receiving the rain, God's sending it on the just and the unjust. So we could ask, why does the evil farmer get rain? Why does he get sun? But the truth is is that the rain and the sun hit everybody equally. The, The rain is sent on the just and the unjust alike. Sometimes people receive blessing just because they're alive and living on this earth. Some people receive the overflow from other people's lives. A great example of blessing overflowing into the lives of of someone else is our children. Our children receive the overflow of the blessing in our life. Even though some of us have had kids that, man, it seems like they shouldn't get any blessing. I mean, my kids sometimes, I'm going to lock you in your room, not give you any blessing. What's wrong with you? But our blessing overflows to them regardless. And then the next scripture that I want to look at is Proverbs 10.22. It says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. You know, we look at people's lives, and we, you know, especially rich and famous people, we look at them and we're like, man, why does it seem like they're getting so much blessing? I mean, they're rich, they're famous, they have it all. And why is it that then me as a Christian, man, I'm just, I'm working paycheck to paycheck. I'm working hard trying to make it. And we look and we're like, why are they blessed like that when I'm not? You know, the first thing we need to realize is that all blessing is not from God. The blessing that is of the Lord makes rich and it adds no sorrow to it. But there are some that are receiving blessing what we would call blessing because they think they got money or fame or fortune or whatever, but it's not a blessing to them. It's not from God. Many of the things that we see as blessing actually are not a blessing but a curse. You know, the most recent example of that is Robin Williams. You look at his life, he was rich, he was famous. He was a comedian, so he's funny. I mean, we look at that and we laughed all the time. He must be a happy guy. Things are going great. But all that money, all that fame didn't stop multiple divorces. And ultimately, it didn't stop him taking his own life. So apparently, what he had in his life wasn't that great of a blessing when all it caused was pain in his life. And then we also need to recognize that the enemy wants to make certain lifestyles and decisions seem more appealing to draw people in. Could it not be that the devil has a hand in these blessings? And you guys might think that I'm, I'm stretching a little bit, I'm reaching, but do you remember when, when the devil tempted Jesus? In Matthew 4, 8-9 through, through nine it says, And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed to him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil is out there trying to make look certain things look more appealing So that way people will be drawn to it. That they would be deceived and lied to. What they think is blessing actually is not. And the next one that we're going to look at, the next big question, we're going to spend the rest of the time on this one because I think it's important. It's probably the most, one of the most honest objections that people would have about God. And and that is why if God is good, then why do bad things happen? 
If God is good, why is there sickness and disease? Why are these natural disasters? And I think probably any of us in this room have sometimes asked this very question. You know, we understand that God is good in all these things, but at the same time we wonder, how could these things be happening? The first thing that we have to understand to, to, to understand and recognize what is going on here is the fact that everything that happens on this earth is not God's will. And you can ask, what do you mean? God is in control of my life. Have everybody heard that? God is in control. If, if it's God willed that it happen, it's going to happen. And we, we begin to attribute all these terrible things to God's will. And that's a dangerous line of thinking. Because these things are not God's will. In Matthew 6, 9-10 through 10, it says, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus telling his disciples how to pray. Do you think that Jesus would have told his disciples to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if it wasn't possible for God's will not to be done on earth? Everything that happens on this earth is not God's will. Now as a believer, God will step in. God will bless you. He will take care of you. He will protect you. But for God to be active in your life, you need to invite him in. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. See, the truth is, Jesus is only going to come through that door if you get up and answer it. He's standing at the door. He's crying out to you. He's telling you that he loves you. He wants to be a part of your life. But if you don't let him in, you limit God's ability to work in your life. But the truth is, there is somebody here on this earth causing all these problems. Cancer is not from God. It's from the enemy. It's from the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a God of this world, and that's the devil, and he wants people to be deceived. He wants to cause pain. He wants to cause misery. The truth is, he can't win. He's already been defeated. The best he can do is drag as many people as he can down with him. In John 10.10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The devil is here to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came that we could have life and have it abundantly. One of the devil's greatest tricks is to get us to blame God for what he has done. And he's very effective at it. There are so many people going around blaming God for sickness and disease and catastrophes and disasters. But it's not God doing it. It's the devil. He's out here to kill, steal, and destroy. And it's not God's will for us to have those things happen in our lives. Like I said, we wouldn't need to pray for God's will to be done on earth if it wasn't possible for it not to be. But then some might say, you know what? 
I thought God did some of these things so that He could discipline us. He's trying to get us to do certain things. I've heard people say that the reason why I have this sickness is so I can grow stronger in faith. or The reason why this is happening to me is so God can train me and mold me and, and God's doing this to me so that He can make me do a certain thing or He's doing this to me to punish me. Has anybody ever felt like they're being punished by God? I felt like that before. It's not true. That's another trick of the enemy to make you think that God's punishing you. To make you feel so guilty that you won't even turn back to Him. But God took out all of His punishment in His Son. When Jesus went to the cross and died for you, He took it all upon Himself. For every sin that you've ever committed, Jesus Christ paid the price for that. God's not going to ask you to pay that price again. In Hebrews 12.6 it says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Wait a minute, Pastor. When you just said that the Lord is not disciplining us. No, that's not true. The Lord does discipline you. The Lord will convict you. You'll hear God speaking to you when you're doing the stuff that you're not supposed to be doing. But what I'm arguing is that He's not doing it by sending sickness and disease and destruction into this world. You see, the Bible says that the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. How do you become a son of God? A child of God? You have to receive Jesus and believe on Him for salvation. In John 1.12 it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So in order to become a children of God, a child of God, You have to receive Jesus. You have to be one that He loves and you have to be a son to receive discipline from the Lord. So there really is just a simple litmus test to determine if it's discipline from the Lord. Is it happening to everyone or just Christians? Does cancer only happen to Christians? No, it happens to everyone. When, when hurricanes come through, are the people that are affected by it only Christians? No, it affects everybody. If it affects everybody, it's not discipline of the Lord. Because nowhere in Scripture do you find that the Lord disciplines those who are not His. God does not give people cancer to try to make them become a stronger Christian, to try to move them in a certain way because they didn't read their Bible enough or they didn't go to church enough because they weren't nice enough to people. God doesn't use those things. He doesn't use a tool of the enemy to discipline you. Now, I thank God that God can and does use everything for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. You know, that God may very well take what the enemy meant for harm in your life and make you, help you grow stronger. You know, people that, that have cancer and overcome, they become stronger. God can use those things in their lives to make them stronger, but never, ever let it be said that it was Him who sent it. Amen? So, alright, if that's the case, if it's 
not God's will that, that all these things be happening in the earth? What is God's will? That's a, that's a legitimate question I think could be asked. What is God's will then? What was the original plan? And we're going to take a, a glimpse into the Garden of Eden, and then we're going to take a glimpse into heaven to see what God's will is for us, actually. In Genesis 131, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Any of you ever went, Man, cancer is awesome. Anyone ever said, Man, I can't wait to the next hurricane? Those things aren't good. But God looked at everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, and that was the sixth day. When God created the earth, he looked at it and said, this place is awesome. There's nothing wrong here. There was no sickness when God created the earth. There was no disease when God created the earth. There was no death when God created the earth. Man was supposed to live forever in the garden, to procreate, to to live their lives, create families, and be in relationship with God. That's what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be like. God's not a haphazard creator. He didn't create flaws that one day would eventually turn into all these things. When God created it and it said it was good, you can believe that it was good. And there was nothing there that was bad. Then if we take a a look, a a glimpse into heaven, in Revelations 21.4 it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God's vision for heaven doesn't include sickness. It doesn't include pain. It doesn't include mourning. I mean, there's no death. There's no reason to mourn in heaven. There's no crying. When we get to heaven, none of these things will exist. Because this is God's will for us, is eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal fellowship with Him. Not pain and sickness. If it was God's will for these things to be done, if it was God's will for people to have cancer or sickness, why wouldn't we see it in heaven? If it was God's will, it would be in heaven, right? But it's not. Because these things are not God's will for our life. When people come to you and they ask, why is God doing these things? It's not God doing them and it's not His will. God's vision for the earth when He created it did not include cancer. It didn't include diabetes. It didn't include depression or dementia. It didn't include earthquakes, tsunamis, floods. When people are dealing with these situations, God did not will it to happen. Matter of fact, these situations are in direct opposition to God's will. God's will is that people would be free, that people would be restored, that people would be whole. You know, we begin to see a part of that as we become believers. God recreates us on the inside and healing and wholeness and victory are ours in Him. God intended man to tend His garden and be in fellowship with Him. And the view that we just saw of heaven right here, and the view we saw of the garden before the fall, is how life was supposed to be. Amen? So then what's the next obvious question? Well, if 
that was God's will, why are all these things here? Right? That would be the next obvious question. Okay, we've, we've looked at it's not God that's doing it, it's the devil. We've looked at he's not using this stuff to discipline us or punish us. We've looked at what his will actually is for us. Well, none of that stuff lines up with what's actually happening on earth today. In Genesis 2, 15-17, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. For on that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was the warning that God gave. This is, at this point, there still was no death. There was no sickness. There was no disease. Everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden. But then in just the next chapter, we see what we all know has happened, right? Everybody knows the story of, of Adam and Eve. Even people that aren't Christians know the story of Adam and Eve. But Adam ate from the tree. And in Genesis 3.17, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. At the moment that man disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is when death was introduced into this earth. Many of us would think that it's pretty harsh that, that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because of this thing, but the truth is that, that that wasn't a curse, that was a blessing because if we would have remained in the garden in the broken state that we were and ate from the tree of life, then we would be stuck that way forever. There would be no way to repair what was going on. We'd be eternally broken. But He removed us from the garden so that we couldn't eat from that tree so that He could eventually send His Son to restore us to the rightful place that we were created to be in. When God created the Garden of Eden, He gave everything to man. Gave him full and free reign of the garden with just the instructions to tend it and only one thing that He couldn't do. And of course... That's the one thing we did. I know when I read this story for the first time, I began to see what was happening. I just couldn't fathom why God would put this tree in the garden. Why not have it there in the first place? Why not? If it wasn't there, none of this would have happened, right? But the truth is, without the opportunity to be disobedient there's no opportunity to obey without the opportunity to enact your will there is no free will and without free will without the option or choice choice there is no real relationship with god i was reading in japan there's a virtual dating game that many of the, the young men and women over there play. And it's called Love Plus. And the whole idea of it is a, it's a relationship simulator. Matter of fact, most uh, young Japanese men and women are spending more of their time with these simulations than they are with real men and women. There's actually, by 2060, they're, they're thinking that Japan's going to have an incredible population decline because well, they're just not making babies. Because they're so tied up in these virtual relationships. And in the article that I was reading, it said, even as Love Plus players acknowledge that their lovers are virtual, 
Many say the support and affection they receive feels real. And the latest sign that virtual reality has so insinuated itself into everyday life that it is leaving the imprint of the genuine article. They say that this feels real. But you and I know that the truth is that those relationships that they're having are not real. No matter how real they feel, they're not real. There can be no real love when the, it's just software that's programmed to do what it's supposed to do. Everybody agree with that? It's just, it, it, it can't do anything else but be in a relationship with you. It has no choice. And if it has no choice, it's not a real relationship. And God didn't want robots. God didn't want us to not have a choice. He wanted us to enter in and have a real relationship with Him. That's why the tree was there, because we had to have the opportunity to be disobedient. We had to have the opportunity to enact our free will. And of all the other things that we could do, we picked that one. But the truth is, the story doesn't end there. Man fell. Death was introduced. Sickness was introduced. Disease was introduced. But God made a way that we could be restored back to the same state that Adam was in. That we could be made perfect and pure and holy again and be in relationship with Him. But you know what? This fall, it didn't just affect us. It didn't just affect people. The death didn't just manifest itself in living things, but we're even seeing that our world is falling apart as well. In Romans 8, 18 through 22, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. The earth is waiting for the return of Jesus as well to be freed from the curse that's been placed upon it. The judgment that was passed on to Adam also affected all of creation, sickness, death, decay, all these things were passed on to all of creation when Adam fell. Not just people, but this earth as well. I was looking up some statistics, but we've seen a massive increase in the number of natural disasters that happen every year over the last hundred years. When I'm saying natural disasters, I'm referring from everything from, from earthquakes to extreme temperatures, flood, insect infestations, slides, volcanic eruptions, tidal waves, tsunami, all those things. Fires. In the first decade of the 1900s, there was only a handful of natural disasters, disasters reported each year. Only a handful. Matter of fact, the scale has to go so high to the end of the year, I don't have any idea how much it was because it was so low on this little graph I'm reading. But then in the 1960s, so 60 years later, there was less than 50 natural disasters recorded per year. Now we can argue that maybe in the 1900s we weren't recording stuff very well, but by the 1960s we kind of got a handle on how to write stuff down. We know what's going on in the world. But in the last decade of the 1900s, there were between 350 and 450 natural disasters reported every year. Our world is falling apart. 
The scripture says that it's been growing together in pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is eagerly awaiting on Christ's return. The Greek verb for eagerly awaits is used seven times in the New Testament, and they all point to Christ's return. And this is in, in what hope then the sons of God are revealed in freedom and glory. That's what I was talking about right here. The subjected to it, failure, this, this death, decay, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. When Christ returns, all of this stuff will be abolished. Right now, even the earth is, is crying out in pain because of the fall of man. So we're going to go ahead and end here. In 1 John 1 through 1 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. You know, people want to know why is God doing these things? It's not God. There's no darkness in God, there's no evil in God. God doesn't perform evil, God doesn't create evil. These are the realm in the realm of the enemy. These are the tools of the enemy to attack the people in this world. So I'm going to tell you a story now that I think perfectly illustrates what we're dealing with when people begin to look at a God and, and evil and how all that stuff works together. When I first heard this story, it was attributed to Einstein, but I think he was just tagged on there to make the story seem more important, but it still illustrates the point. And there was a, a university professor that stood and looked out to his, to his students, and he said, does evil exist? And of course, they said yes. And then the university professor challenged his students with his questions. Did God create everything that exists? And a student bravely stood up and he says, yes, God created everything. And the professor asked again, God created everything? And the student once again says, yes, God created everything. And the professor answered, if God created everything, then God created evil since evil exists. And according to the principle that our works define who we are, then God is evil. And the student became quiet before such an answer. And the professor was quite pleased with himself and boasted to the students that he had proven once more that the Christian faith was a myth. And then another student raised his hand and he said, Professor, can I ask you a question? And the professor said, Of course. And the student asked, Professor, does cold exist? And the professor says, what kind of question is this? Have you never been cold? Of, co- of course, cold exists. But the young man replied, in fact, sir, cold does not exist. And according to the laws of physics, what we consider cold is in reality the absence of heat. And every body or object is susceptible to the study when it has or transmits energy. And heat is what makes a body or matter have or transmit energy. And he says, absolute zero, negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit, is the total absence of heat. And all matter becomes inert and incapable of reaction at that temperature. Cold does not exist. We have created this word to describe how we feel if we have no heat. And the student continued, professor, does darkness exist? And the professor responds, of course it does. And the student replied, once again, you're wrong, sir. Darkness does not exist either. Darkness is in reality the absence of light. Light we can study, but not darkness. In fact, we can use Newton's prism to break white light into many colors and study the various wavelengths of each color. But you cannot measure darkness. A simple ray of light can break into a world of darkness and illuminate it. 
How can you know how dark a certain place is? You measure the amount of light present. Isn't this correct? Darkness is a term used by man to describe what happens when there is no light present. So finally, the young man asked the professor, Sir, does evil exist? It says, now uncertain, the professor responded, of course, as I have already said, we see it every day. It is in the daily example of man's inhumanity to man. It is in the multitude of crime and violence everywhere in the world. These manifestations are nothing else but evil. But to this, the student replied, evil does not exist, sir, or at least it does not exist unto itself. Evil is simply the absence of God. It is just like darkness and cold, a word that man has created to describe the absence of God. God did not create evil. Evil is not like faith or love that exists, just as does light and heat. Evil is the result of what happens when man does not have God's love present in his heart. It's like the cold that comes when there is no heat, or the darkness that comes when there is no light. Our world's not the way it is because of God or because of his will, but rather it's because of man's insistence on running away from him. Amen? Let's go and stand on our feet.